You're listening to X-Ray FM on KXRY Portland at 91.1 and 107.1, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. This is Amplify Women on X-Ray FM. We're your hosts, Farmer Michelle Week and Farmer Dominica Rodinich. In celebration of International Women's Day, X-Ray is hosting 12 hours of programming highlighting women and those with intersecting experiences of marginalization. Amplify Women is a time to bring conversations centering women into sharper focus with particular attention to BIPOC, trans, queer, immigrant, poor, working class, and disabled women. Between now and 7 p.m., you'll be hearing from some of Portland's most impactful community leaders, educators, activists, artists, and professionals tell their stories to educate, empower, and inspire change. As part of today's programming, we'll be talking about Good Rain Farms' efforts in indigenous food sovereignty and access in Portland, Oregon. I'm Dominica Rodinich, Good Rain Farms' administrative manager. I pronounce her she, her. And I'm speaking with Michelle Week, farm founder of Good Rain Farm. Hi, Michelle. Hi, I'm Michelle Week. I use she, her pronouns and the primary farmer at Husquiet at Good Rain Farm. And really excited to be here and talking about what we do at the farm all day, every day. Yay. <laughs> and our farm, if we were to introduce Good Rain, uh, Good Rain Farm is a small two-acre community-supported agriculture produce farm. We serve over 150 families in the greater Portland area, and we're focused on indigenous first foods and stories. And I wanted to start talking with you today, Michelle, just to get started with uh, talking about what is indigenous food sovereignty? How do you define that? Yeah, Indigenous food sovereignty is all about our ability to self-determine, define, and have access to the foods that are culturally relevant and important to us and um, and engage with those foods in ways that are also uh, culturally significant. And um, that's a lot of what we do on the farm, a lot of what inspired me to farm. Um, I am Sinai or Arrow Lakes from North Central Washington, and that extends up through Okanagan country into Canada. And that's where the Arrow Lakes actually are. They're part of the headwaters of the Columbia River. And uh, another part of my ancestry is also uh, French and uh, a lot of French fur trader there. Um, And so I like to explore kind of both of those ancestors and their cultures and their food cultures and how those sometimes intersect each other and um, create new and exciting new food um, fusions, if you will. Awesome. And definitely you've brought me into that world of thinking about my ancestry and food in ways I had never thought of before. Like, oh, right, I've got this Montenegrin uh, family ancestry and this Scottish family ancestry, but I hadn't thought about our food at the table and how that was reflected uh, in those ancestries quite so, I don't know, so uh, directly. Uh, So yeah. Um, And, you know, we're talking about uh, a little bit reclamation of language there with the name of the farm, uh, Good Rain Farm, which has an indigenous name, Hasquiet. And I love that we're, you know, doing this, this work of the language uh, in storytelling. Yeah, definitely. I definitely chose and I, you know, I spoke a lot with my grandmother and my mother, um, who are both members of the Cavill Confederate tribes. And uh, about would it be okay if I named my business and, and primarily put forth our language in that naming and in our marketing. And 
and they were both really excited. My grandmother uh, was out to visit uh, around that time and we got to flip through a bunch of uh, ancestry charts and family trees and old photos together and really connect. And uh, in that discussion, she began to share some books with me she had found and some language and even spoke some of our like Salish Sinai language to me that I had never heard her say before. Um, so it was a really awesome opportunity to connect um, at a deeper level, even with my own family. Um, but also like having Hosquia out there has really drawn out, you know, I've met a literal cousin of mine. <laughs> We got to talking. They were like, that's so cool that you're Sinai and you're farming. And we got to talking. It turns out they're an actual blood relative of mine, <laughs> extended family. Um, but other other folks, too, who share in the, the Salish language, which is kind of this broader uh, language family of the Pacific Northwest. And for them to also see the name Hasquia out there has been really inspiring and exciting for them and really I've gotten lots of beautiful comments and communications around it and just being able to kind of uh, make visible and validate our continued existence. So the, the Sinai, the Arrow Lakes people were considered extinct um, until very recently. Um, and so this has been a really interesting experience for me growing up more suburban, urban um, and distanced from my community. Uh, that experience of indigeneity in this uh, assimilation process. So really like Hasquiet, putting that first and foremost out there and growing this farm and sharing these food stories of where all these first foods come from has just been a super awesome way to continue to exist as resistance, to, to continue to reconnect to my personal ancestry, but also to be able to like support all the urban natives who've been relocated to urban centers for all these various reasons and be able to bring like culturally significant first foods to them in, in their new locations, far removed from traditional homelands and community. So I would say you're not just existing, but uh, thriving uh, in this modern indigenous identity in your farm. Well, thanks. But I'm biased. I work with you. So <laughs> what do I know? Well, actually, I know plenty, but all right. So uh, another another concept that you introduced me to that I've been thinking about a lot is first foods and your definition of first foods, which plays a huge role at Good Green Farm. Yeah. Yeah. I do go around saying, you know, a every food is somebody's first food. And I think it's important that we start exploring where these foods come from, who are their ancestors, who were their caretakers, who... Uh, help them continue on into this day and age and, and find their way here, right? So I know the kale, the dinosaur kale or Tuscan kale, it has so many names. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm that, nodding my head. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Be because that kale comes from some of your ancestors. Right, trying to look up vegetables and realizing I was looking up the same vegetable with a different origin story and a different name uh, system, basically naming system and just the hilarity of like researching all the way back around to a Montenegrin kale. I was like, oh, hi, kale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we're not. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of cool like brassicas that come out of France um, that speak to that ancestry. Um, and then uh 
uh, one of my favorite like fusion dishes are like nettles, which are around the world. Like they have a belt around the world where they exist, but they also exist here in the Northwest as kind of a, a native plant here, uh, a common food forest plant that my original uh, native ancestry would have eaten and making that into a pesto and like eating it with some roasted rabbit. So I also raise Champagne de Argent, if I say that right. My apologies to all the French speakers and aficionados out there. Um, but it's a heritage breed meat rabbit that we raise. It's a beautiful, uh, they're born pitch black and turn silver over time. Um, really friendly, nice rabbits. And uh, knowing that like all my ancestors had partake in that consumption of rabbit and being able to kind of bring these dishes together and these different stories and threads and like weave them into our everyday life. Um, but yeah, a lot of our first foods, uh, especially in the more farm setting, I try to focus on indigenous varieties of some of the more conventional farmed uh, agricultural foods. So uh, corns and peppers and tomatoes and squashes, like we really try to focus on um, reconnecting, reviving and, and proliferating these um, indigenous specific varieties. And now we're talking about biodiversity, which, you know, thinking about traditional ecological knowledge and how that fits <laughs> together at Good Rain, because that is, you know, each of the varietals you know, some, when we think of a farm, that, that that's a very open concept. And our farm very specifically grows a lot of vegetables, like maybe up to a hundred varieties any given yeah. season. And those <laughs> varieties are curated to reflect where we are as much as possible, but also who we are as a membership of the CSA. So that, like you said, these ancestral foods, most, you know, we try to concentrate on uh, Turtle Island uh, indigenous first foods, mm -hmm. but also those ancestral foods from all over the world, which is who makes up our membership uh, right. aggregate and that kind of uh, melded table situation uh, that comes out of that. But the biodiversity in the TEK, you know, now we're starting to talk about kind of non-Western views of say land care or stewardship. Um, and I'm wondering if you want to talk about that a little bit, because that is a huge component of how you farm. Yeah. Yeah. So traditional ecological knowledge or TEK, um, every group of people has these. Um, and a lot of that is a relationship that had developed or co-evolved um, in a place, in an ecology, in a geographical location. And it's a a lot of it is how we interact with in a reciprocal and reverent relationship with that area's plants and animals and even weather and all of those components, right? Because it really kind of brings us back to recognizing that we're dependent on the continued existence of these plants and animals. And many of them are also dependent on us or benefit from us. So how do we interact with the land and these ecologies in a way where we don't take so much that we damage them or cause them harm or prevent them from continuing to create new generations of life, uh, but really interact with them in a way where we respect this gift of life they're giving us. Um, and support them in continuing to thrive as well. 
Um, and I think a lot about like Oregon White Oaks is really where Husqueat Good Rain Farms started underneath this grove of Oregon White Oaks. And those oaks really benefited from TEK, from these cultural burns that communities all up and down the Willamette Valley would engage in. And that would create some biochar and fertilization. It would help with pruning um, and keeping fires from getting out of control, but really controlling those fires in um, really smart ways. And tribes all over had like some different techniques and it's always really cool to hear about all these different techniques and approaches to the same kind of problem or um, land tending practices. And, uh, and yeah, all these beautiful other plants would thrive under these Oregon white oaks. Uh, you would see hazelnuts and salmon berries and camas bulbs. Um, and I really love being able to approach the farm from that perspective and point of view of how do we engage in reciprocal reverent stewardship and relationship with the plants and animals. And then how do you fit that into capitalism, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got to pay the bills, the rents, uh, et cetera. Uh, like the rent for land, for instance, because we're, oh we're on rented land, which is a whole other sovereignty and access uh, conversation. But it but it's kind of you can't really talk about it without without talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. So we, we rent on uh, with the irony of renting on stolen land is not lost on Michelle, I would say. <laughs> no, no, it's not um, fun. No, no, it's it comes with a lot of barriers to uh, to scaling up, but also barriers to to some of that stewardship. It's hard to honor some of the cultivars that I think are most important to us and and uh, and to creating that community because that comes with ownership, which is access. You know, so long term secure access. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, like I said, like my tribe was considered extinct. There are so many tribes. I hear people talk about like, oh, there's 500 some tribes in America, but it's more than that, because what I mentioned, my my maternal mother and grandmother are members of the confederated tribes. So that's 12 tribes on one reservation. And typically when you say that 500, you are counting that confederated tribes as one of those 500. So there's hundreds of thousands of communities and across Turtle Island uh, who all had their different cultures and uh, engagements with relationship with the land that they were on. And through uh, settlerism, colonialism, um, and the genocide of people and land theft, we really lost a lot of access to our foods. So uh, there were more obvious uh, destruction of burning of fields of of crops and uh, destroying seed houses and food stores um, or like the mass uh, murder of buffalo in the Great Plains. Um, Here in the Northwest, a lot of our plants are perennial. They take a long time to grow and they hang out for a long time in, in one place. And so when we are only renters and not owners, it's hard to maintain that long-term relationship um, and really see like a sapling or a a baby oak tree turn into a prolific provider of uh, oak flower, say. Um, And it takes time 
And, you know, that is one of our big questions we get for the farm is like, do you have fruit? Do you have some of these items and, and fruits and nuts and um, some of those things? They take a long time to grow and establish. And um, when you've lost access to that land or you have unsteady access or unsecure access to the land, it really prohibits your ability to engage in those cultural diets and cultural practices and um, maintain the land and maintain a relationship to that land. This is Amplify Women on X-Ray FM. We're your hosts, Michelle Week and Dominica Rodinich. As part of today's programming, we'll be talking about Good Rain Farms efforts in indigenous food sovereignty and access in Portland, Oregon. So I'm Dominica, I'm the administrative manager at Good Rain Farm and I'm talking with Michelle, who's the farm founder of Good Rain Farm. And we are deep in the weeds, so to speak, <laughs> of, uh, indigenous food sovereignty and access and how that intersects our world at our farm here in Portland. And uh, just a reminder, our for- farm is a CSA farm, a little two acre uh, community supported agriculture farm, um, which I feel like we should talk about what a CSA is a little bit, because maybe not everybody who's listening knows and Okay. Um, oh, we have kind of a funny meat cute story, actually, at the end of the day, don't we? So uh, I'll <laughs> tell a story. And that's that uh, I, Dominica, I met Michelle, uh, or I didn't meet Michelle, but I, I ate food that Michelle grew before I met Michelle. <laughs> and that was my first CSA experience uh, at a farm that uh, Michelle was working at before Good Rain started. And we didn't figure that out till later. Uh, but then, uh, but now I work, I work with you managing all of these crazy projects we do and awesome, <laughs> you know, work we're involved in. So yeah, uh, CSAs, what are they? Community supported agriculture. Uh, how did you come to choose that model of all the farm models for, for, for Good Rain? Yeah, yeah, I chose to do community supported agriculture because I didn't have a lot of savings, a lot of money, a lot of capital to start a farm business. So part of access, uh, part of sovereignty and defining and self-determination of food systems um, is access, access to starting a farm that can focus on um, indigenous first foods. And uh, so the CSA model is like a Kickstarter for farms. Uh, so you pay up front or, or begin your payments earlier in the season, and then your reward, what you get paid back in are vegetables all through the, the season, the summer season, um, all through the bounty. Um, it helps me personally, like actually invest uh, with the seed money into seeds, um, but also in equipment and other needs we have, potting soil, whatnot, um, and get started for the season before the bounty is really on us. And definitely CSAs are fresher than any other food I've ever experienced, at least at a grocery store. So like when you're getting, when you're supporting the farmers, you're also getting another reward, I guess I would say a perk of CSA membership at any farm is that that food you're eating was harvested often hours to a day before you eat it, which is so much less time than you usually interact with your food. And that flavor and the the things that changes, the things it gives you access to with these foods is really incredible. Um, I I, I don't know. I get really excited about vegetables though. And I don't know if everybody (laughs) gets as excited about vegetables as we do, but yeah, fresh, delicious, young, tender vegetable is, you know, uh, 
uh, not to use meat terminology, but it's like the filet mignon of, of whatever it is, whether it's the broccoli or the garlic. And it's, it's hard to describe until you had it. Yeah. They're definitely um, fresher and more nutritious, right? Like there's a half-life to the nutrition in every food item. So once we pick it, it becomes critical that to get the most out of it, we consume it as soon as possible. So I imagine some people think of CSA because it's an upfront investment, right? So how do how do you how does food equity and access fit into that uh, with a CSA? And this is, I think, one of the elements of Good Rain I'm the most proud of. And and all credit to you, Michelle, on this. Really, <laughs> at the end of the day, 100. Uh, <laughs> percent about the exciting, exciting world of payment systems and payment pathways. <laughs> sales systems right how food yeah. equity actually happens like this on the is... grounds like the doing of it not just the theoretical wouldn't it be nice if but like, yeah yeah tell yeah. me a little bit about our payment pathways at Goodwill. <sighs> the payment pathways you wrangle um <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we totally forced a square peg through a round hole with our website didn't we um so on the farm, so CSAs can often be this one big upfront cost, right? About $700, $800 is kind of the average for the Portland Metro cost of a CSA share. And many folks ask for that upfront in one big payment chunk. Uh, we accept those, those are cool. Um, but to make it more accessible, we created a sliding scale payment plan. So we have our market rate where we kind of meet uh, what it truly costs to grow the food on our farm and what our uh, community at large is also charging. Um, and then we have about a 30% above and below pricing. Um, so the 30% above uh, allows wealthier folks who maybe have more um, generational wealth and access can pay a little bit more and that extra goes into our scholarship fund. And then we have it just below at 30% um, below our market rate so that folks can choose self-select at a lower price point that might be more approachable to them. Um, and then on top of that, then you can double up on that sliding scale with payment plans where we divide the total payment into five payments. And so each month for five months, you can take uh, and pay. And that helps reduce that cash flow um, hiccup and allows people to better budget um, and make it even more approachable. Um, we also accept uh, SNAP, EBT food benefits, um, and we partner with a local organization to also help stretch those dollars with the Double Up Food Bucks program. And, and then, as I mentioned, we have our own in-house scholarship fund that folks can gift to. Um, and part of that scholarship fund is also applying to and receiving grants. Um, so we've received grants uh, from organizations like Oregon Food Bank and Feed the Mass and Growing Gardens to um, help subsidize uh, at no charge to the end consumer, uh, the CSA shares, while all the while, while making sure that we, the farmers, um, get compensated fairly for our efforts and create more livable wage jobs uh, and just keep dignity on the work in the work. Um, yeah, but the website back end is kind of a mess. <laughs> oh, don't be so hard on yourself. 
plenty of business backend website areas are not to be seen. They're, they're <laughs> not to be looked at. Uh, no one wants to see that. Yeah. But yeah, the, you, you mentioned the self-selecting and I just want to highlight that because that self-selection process works in both directions because of that sliding scale and the way all of our options are set up directly on the same retail portal, right? So all of our customers are our customers. They have the yeah. same website to interface with. They're given the same options to choose from. They're treated with the same level of dignity and respect. And that was something that really struck me you know, as a kid that grew up on food stamps and didn't always have a lot of you know, food security. It means so much to be seen and, 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 and treated humanly you know, and humanely. Uh, at the gate and not separated from, you know, what if I start doing a little better? I don't, I don't know this idea mm-hmm. of, kind of switching lines almost. Right. Um, and it's, I just, I love how streamlined that is um, and how dignified it feels. Um, yeah. Or at least I, I, you know, I hope that comes through too. Cause that's how I feel <laughs> about it. But again, I helped to build it. So I'm biased. <laughs> yeah. I had looked at a few other folks systems or wordings um, and I really didn't want people to have to justify or prove themselves to us and for their need. I didn't want to create extra fill out this form to receive the free thing. I didn't want to create extra documentation. Tell us a story or. Yeah. Um, Didn't want to like tap into any of that shame or guilt or trauma or just not wanting to share all our personal details with each other (laughs) and just like let people choose what works best for them. And I think that that's worked really well in the past, like last year, the exact number of people who paid above market rate uh, subsidized the exact same number of people who paid below. Um, And that was a huge win for kind of sliding scale and mutual community support and aid within our community. And to know that we did that together. we just created this space for that to happen, but really seeing our community take that action and engage in that way was really inspiring um, and just super awesome to hear that from folks. But yeah, I, I, we just created different coupon codes and we just let people choose what works best for them and go through the process as everybody else and everybody gets the same CSA shares the same quality, the same content and um, quantity. Uh, we don't like separate out different share boxes. <laughs> um, it's all it's all the same. And I want to like support and honor people no matter where they're at and how they access food. Because I really feel like food is like a, a human right to have access to like great nutritious local food. It shouldn't be this like extra charge surcharge for local and organic. Um, I think everyone deserves the right to like fresh, organic, sustainable grown foods. Um, and that's again, back to that sovereignty piece of like, what is indigenous sovereignty? What is food sovereignty? And, and we're out here kind of defining that in action on the farm for us. That means food is a human right. And like, how do we make that happen within the constraints of capitalism um, and how do we engage in that? Well, I loved how you laid out what the real barriers are. I think sometimes it's hard to make concrete some of the abstract ideas and some of the words that we use when we say there's barriers to access. And like you said, you know, limiting how much do we make people provide their trauma story or 
uh, provide them documentation to fill out or, you know, papers to show to gain access when, you know, it's, it, we just, it, it can be self-selected. Uh, it can be an honor system. Uh, and this kind of this holistic way of looking at uh, letting the community self-select, not making assumptions, I think right. is where that really comes from. The intention of that is to not make assumptions. And that goes in both directions. I don't want to make assumptions about people's prosperity nor their struggle. Right. And, and that feels more dignified and honest and lets people ask for what they really need. And that's so incredible in a community that it sorts itself out a little. There's this equilibrium that happens of uh, real community interactions of people giving and taking as they need. And that's, uh, you know, powerful stuff uh, not to get too, I don't know, spiritual or excited or woo woo <laughs> or whatever the fear is there. But yeah, no, it's, it's incredible to see happen, especially, you know, whatever. <laughs> I see it happen in the databases and stuff. So it doesn't feel as bucolic and spiritual there. Yeah. Facing uh, and invoices up in here. But, no, uh, but that yeah. like taking and giving as needed really reminds me of like traditional potlatches in the area and like how that's <laughs> these, this is like modern day potlatch. <laughs> yeah, no, you just didn't realize Modern day pole barn raising is the database administrating, yeah. you know, technical support for community <laughs> programming, right? Like that is what that is. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, because it has to happen somewhere uh, in, in, in the business, right? It has to have, there's this tangible part where you're like, well, how does it fit together? How does it actually happen? Um, and, and business requires that everything, you know, snap, snap, happen. snap. It's got to happen quick. It's all in Excel. It's all in Excel. <laughs> Yeah, we've rung, rung those numbers dry for their, for their usefulness. Um, okay, so hmm, what haven't we talked about about sovereignty and food access? There's so much. I know, I know that we haven't fully talked about land access because you have big plans for Good Green Farm in the future. Like big plans that don't fit on our little rental spot now. No. But like you know, you know, I'm thinking about the next generation of farmers. I'm thinking about like, you know, what is, what is, what does good rain grow into? Uh, what is how, and, and how does that programming grow basically? Yeah. Starting to yeah. get excited about those thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good rain farm grows with, you know, definitely more acreage, more solidified ownership and access to land. Um, and we're talking like 30 some acres and, and that's really so that we have acreage to allow the land to rest and to allow the land um, and the microbes and the soil uh, to revive and replenish itself. Yeah, I would love to see us do more farm internships and uh, grow the next generation of farmers and grow into kind of a safe farm incubator space for other Black and Indigenous and people of color and queer farmers to engage in. Um, that is, again, like more culturally appropriate and approachable um, and uh, not operated by folks who are sometimes disconnected from these realities and experiences. Yeah. <laughs> Because there are, there's a lot of farm training in the world and in Oregon and the Pacific Northwest, um, but a lot of it is not culturally specific training. Which is no. Kind of like another level of, you know, what do we mean by culturally specific? It's like not just what are the plants that are being grown, how are they being grown? Yeah. And then also, how do we share that information to the next generation of farmers? 
Yeah. And a lot of that's having um, black and indigenous and people of color teachers. Like why is all this knowledge um, very academic and removed from these communities? You know, a lot of people can name white male farmers uh, more easily than they can farmers of color. And there's some reasons for that. Right. Uh, And so building a base and both celebrating maybe the more academic science, Western white science that we have now, which is still like great and useful science, um, but helping weave that, weave that traditional ecological knowledge back into that. Um, because really what I find a lot of times is that the technical assistance and the advice we get for farming is all rooted in that traditional ecological knowledge, or it has just proven what we already knew. (laughs) Um, And so really like being able to be honest about that and weave these practices together um, is really important. It's important to make space and to build up leaders and educators in that and make that again, accessible and diversify how we approach um, our food systems as a region. I think it'll only make us more resilient, which we're gonna need as we experience more climate change in the world. And so, yeah, just really wanting to build that up. Okay, so uh, Save Our Seed CSA is one of our programs at Good Rain Farm. Mm-hmm. And Michelle, I want you to tell me about this program. It started last year. And, uh, and so we're kind of, we're just, we're doing it for the second year this year and it's grown a little bit and just, I don't know, but we're talking about indigenous food sovereignty and we haven't talked about seeds yet, which feels remiss so yeah let's talk about save our seeds yeah save our seeds uses yet another payment pathway of buy one gift one um and so for every save our seed is so rewind save our seeds is about uh seed saving education So our goal is to help folks learn how to save seed in all the ways that you save seed, wet, dry, um, all the different processes, um, and go through those motions in real time with the season um, and physically engage in it as well as like theoretical directional. Um, And it is so important and it's so sacred by so many communities to have those seeds. Um, Without those seeds, we won't have next year's crop. And so for the FARB, when we were focusing on Indigenous First Foods of Turtle Island, I noticed that a lot of our Indigenous First Foods seeds uh, were located at seed purveyors, seed companies, primarily run by white folks, most of them profitably run. And uh, because our seeds were destroyed in those earlier days um, and the goal of uh, eliminating Native American experiences, we lost a lot of them or very few of those varieties were kept. And so those seeds are considered rare, uh, heirloom, um, and they're hard to find. So there's like a a pride, price increase on that access. So they cost more for us to buy, um, say an indigenous corn variety than a normal land race variety. Um, 
and land race is just like a it's a fancy term for like sweet cord that grows rapidly and grows well with chemicals and monoculture um <laughs> and uh and uh we're getting into the technical agriculture yeah. terms now oh no oh we're no retreat <laughs> yeah um so I was really frustrated that for me to even be able to access indigenous seeds, to grow indigenous food, to nourish our community, it would cost more money. Um, and as, as a group, right, natives don't have as much generational wealth. So we're being priced out of our own culture and out of access to our own culture. Um, I didn't appreciate these paywalls and even sometimes when you can access an indigenous seed, you, you know, a lot of, uh, there's like an underground seed exchange in native communities um, where if you meet someone or know somebody, you'll get like five seeds. <laughs> five seeds is not enough to feed. <laughs> Wait, five uh, holes, right? Yeah. Yeah. You those plant are... them all in one place. Is that how? We... <laughs> all right. Yeah. All right. Those five seeds aren't going to feed many people. Um, and in fact, you'll probably want to save all of those seeds to grow more plants and more plants year to year. So save our seeds is really an act in rematriation of seed saving. So we educate people on how to save seed and bring the community in to this practice. Uh, it's a really important practice to learn, again, food resiliency and sovereignty. Um, and then it's an active practice in remediation in that we will, uh, folks get to keep some of those seeds, but then they return a lot of the seeds back to us. We as a farm will save those seeds and grow them again next year to continue the cycle and the relationship with these plants. Uh, but we also turn around and send those seeds off to uh, other indigenous communities um, and uh, help make those seeds more accessible and help those varieties become more prolific once again, um, so that people can more actively engage in their traditional diets and cultures around those foods. Um, and so that's a big part of what Save Our Seeds is. So a uh, really cool program. Um, it's been, you know, we've had a learning curve last year, <laughs> but it is like growing and expanding. I don't think we're going to get rid of it. Um, because I think it's just so important and it's such an engaging activity for everyone to participate in and actively um, contribute to our food system. Yeah, because I mean, it's skills training and seed saving is one way to look at it on this really practical level, but culturally it's also doing, it's, it's, it's a doing of culture that is really tangible and is, um, you know, it, it ranges from the mundane to the spiritual, but that's kind of how culture works, right? Yeah. It's, it's part of our everyday lives. So, and the stories that come from this are, um, it's not that they're different from the food stories, but I do feel like seed stories are their own stories. Like they have their own book in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seed story book in my mind. And then there's a food story book in my mind and they're not, I, they're not exactly the same. They're not twins. <laughs> so, um, and this idea of rematriation, because, you know, again, like, what does it look like to do resistance uh, for cultural erasure and, and ethnic erasure, right? Mm -hmm. This is a huge, um, it's, it's hugely resistant and, and, uh, and not going along with the status quo, what's been asked uh, of assimilation 
of entire peoples and cultures. So it's, you know, it's like, it can yeah. sound really lofty when we talk about the farm because it's like, you know, indigenous sovereignty and this and that. It's like, well, but it lives in these, it lives in these programs and it lives in these little um, administrative tasks and, and which is networking and community work and outreach and and it's, uh, it doesn't always sound super sexy or bucolic. So no, <laughs> not always the most exciting. It's not always just like ponies and little chickadees at the farm. Um, though I kind of messy. Yeah. It maybe is as messy as that part of the farm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's where the good stuff grows from is the muck and mire. Everybody knows that. Yep. Out of the compost pile. <laughs> The payment models and the lack of, uh, re- you know, requiring people to explain themselves to access the programming has been really radical. And then the programming itself has been really radical in my mind in some ways. Um, yeah, I'm sure the fact that we're uh, a for-profit uh, or not for-profit, I should say, right? Oh, we didn't even dive into that yet, have we? Uh-oh. No. Okay, so Good Rain Farm is a not-for-profit company, which means that we do make a profit, but we don't put those profits above other programs and people. That's my quick definition of that. <laughs> and then you have profit companies, like your typical capitalists, you know, make as much money as you can companies, fine. Similar bucket, but slightly different ways of doing business. And then you have nonprofits, and our farm is not a nonprofit. But we're often asked why we're not a nonprofit. And it's always this funny explanation of like, well, you can do the good and the social programming, but the nonprofit model is really different. It's really separate from what we do. Yeah. Um, it can be really limiting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it yeah. puts a dependency on certain like funding systems that like, I don't know, I, they don't feel as free. Yeah, exactly that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I had... I had kind of intentionally done this with the farm. So my ultimate goal and hopes with the farm is that it become worker owned. Um, and that, you know, that can help create, um, and ease that access to entrepreneurship and business ownership for others. Um, so a way to kind of help uplift folks, um, economically and in like job stability wise. Um, but definitely it's not in my heart or soul to like put profit above all else, people and plants and animals. Like I, I don't want to do that. And that's been, you know, I think I see this even in like organic, regenerative, sustainable farming sometimes where they're still trying to maximize and extract as much profit as they can out of the square footage. And that's not really, we're here to like build reverent, relationships, right? Like I'm here to like learn alongside and grow alongside these plants each season um, and appreciate uh, their generosity in sharing this bounty and this food with us. Um, And that's where like I start to deviate in wanting to, you know, yeah, we got to make a profit. We need to be able to pay ourselves well and to pay our rents and our phone bills and all of that fun stuff and buy new equipment. Um, and, uh, or repair old equipment or repair old equipment. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, and that's where, you know, we're grateful for our nonprofit partners, but oftentimes like some of our struggles, right, of applying for grants has been having to tell a trauma story or um, the difficulties of access and, and also have deliverables, like physical deliverables or um, 
like certain numbers and demographics. And again, I don't like to like pry into people's lives or um, dig deep into that area. And it's hard sometimes to do like a physical deliverable when you don't own the land. So how am I to install a native hedgerow um, when I don't own the land so that all that time and effort and money goes into improving someone else's enjoyment of that land that I won't ultimately be on for a very long time that I could have focused my time and energy, emotional and mental energy on growing food for people um, instead of uh, improving this like landscape that like never should have been (laughs) as disturbed as it was that like my ancestors were taking good care of originally. So um, (laughs) I get a little like, I don't like having to undo the mistakes that were never really like a big part of uh, my background. Um, So yeah, I just, I think for us on the farm, being able to like, not be profit driven, but profit conscious, and to be able to turn excess profits into programming and education and support for community has been really important to us. And it also means that we have a, you know, I've seen in nonprofits, I've experienced and participated in various programs where they got grant funded once to do this program once, and then the funding didn't come back around the next year. And so then that project, that food access didn't continue on. So you like find a bunch of people, you find a need, you fill that need for a short amount of time, and then you take it away and it's just gone. Um, And those people have to go now and engage with another nonprofit or another service provider. And for us, being a not-for-profit business means that we have a more stable and continuous existence in providing um, the services and the produce and our programming to people more consistently and over a longer amount of time that will hopefully create a more systemic and um, impactful uh, uh, improvement in our community as a whole. This is Amplify Women on X-Ray FM. We're your hosts, Michelle Week and Dominica Rodinich. As part of today's programming, we'll be t- we're talking about Good Rain Farms' efforts in Indigenous food sovereignty and access in Portland, Oregon. So I'm Dominica, Farm Administrative Manager of Good Rain Farm, and I'm speaking with farm founder Michelle, and we're talking about Indigenous food sovereignty. Um, so we were just talking about being a profitable company that still puts people and land stewardship and community first. Um, which is a, a, a tricky line to follow sometimes in, in, in capitalism and farming. Um, mm-hmm. There's another element that we haven't talked about yet, which is, um, you know, we've talked about barriers to access of other people accessing the food you grow, but there are some very specific barriers to access I've witnessed you experience in farming um, well, you know, I'll just speak to what I've observed, right? And then you can t- talk to me a bit about that. But, uh-huh. um, you know, just the other day, maybe today, no, it was the other day, this week, though, just this week, um, you know, proving uh, your nativeness, your, your indigenous cred, if you will, uh, uh-huh. blood quantum issues, colorism issues, like all of these issues I've, I've watched point blank as you have been asked to provide documentation that I have never, ever, ever, ever seen most farmers, let's say, have to provide to do business. 
Um, and, and yeah, just, you know, reflecting on that invasion of, of privacy and that undue request for your labor that keeps cropping up. Um, <laughs> I mean, which of the barriers you've experienced do you think have been the most impactful, I guess, or the, or the most draining? And I'm curious what, how they rank for you if you had to rank <laughs> them. Yeah, uh, definitely. Blood quantum is a result of wanting to eliminate uh, Native identities. So uh, kill the Indians, save the man is a famous quote for that, Um, which really just means uh, take our culture and our Native identity out of us um, and assimilate us into white uh, mainstream culture. Um, and that's a very real part of my, my family's story and experience. Um, and then, yeah, there's like all these, again, back to those like, uh, certifications, like our, you know, we get asked if we're organic certified or regenerative farming certifications and some of these other things. And not that I don't love a solid certification. I have many, (laughs) um, (laughs) but Uh, I get frustrated by these because they create paywalls. They cost both money. You have to pay to apply and have someone come out and assess you for all of these. And then you also have to do all this additional administrative backend work. And it has to be organized differently, but it's the same information for all of them. So, uh, and I feel this way about our finances and interacting with banks and loans all the time too. They have the same asks, but they want it all organized differently. So every time you have to spend all this time and energy meeting their specific need. Um, And again, that's all just to like prove that we do what we already do. Um, And I really think it should be like the reverse. Conventional farmers, uh, farmers who use chemicals and monocrops should have to prove Um, or go through additional uh, safety measures and assessments um, instead of small organic um, operations, sustainable operations, or people who are practicing their cultures are suddenly getting priced out of practicing their cultures um, or aren't certified practicing their cultures, um, even though it's clearly theirs. Um, And then like, yeah, recently this week, uh, we were struggling with the women and minority uh, business entrepreneurship certification, right? And I was just like, boy, why do I have to prove my native identity and my genitalia and my sexual orientation? Like, where is the like cis straight white man certification? Why can't they jump through a bunch of documentation to prove themselves. <laughs> right. When you flip the script, it, it gets pretty ridiculous pretty quick uh, to anyone who was on the fence of whether or not it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's not normal questions for farmers or business owners. Yeah. It's just a lot. It's just a lot of documentation and bureaucratic paperwork and all under this like idea that we're going to celebrate and include more diversity but first, please fill out this PDF, submit this documentation, log into this new application. And be um, ready to report on the deliverables yes. for some time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so those those have all Which been... is not insurmountable, to be clear. Plenty of people get through those hoops. No yeah. shade on anybody getting through those hoops. Like this isn't, you know, hating on all certification processes or all affiliation processes. But yeah, after the nth time of 
being asked to prove you are yourself in ways that no one around you is being asked. Like I, I just, yeah, it seemed it would get draining. Yeah. It's emotional and uh, mentally draining for sure. And it gets tiring and I would love to take all that time and energy and focus on our programs and growing food <laughs> and stop with these distractions. Yeah. So we're talking about, you know, the certification of self that is asked of you, Michelle, uh, as a native farmer, proving oneself. Um, but there's also been, you know, being a woman farmer kind of barriers mm-hmm. and, and that kind of loneliness on a few levels in the farm world where there's a lot of people that don't necessarily think like we think or look like we look, I guess, right? Where it's just, it's, there's a lot of being around the boys club um, also. Yeah, I think uh, farming is definitely like the majority of land is owned um, by white male identifying farmers. Um, so we also have like we are continuing to face this really huge shift in in the industry and in land ownership, uh, where a lot of folks are now of retirement age, uh, their family, um, their children may not specifically want to pick up and start farming. And so how do we transition um, from this old um or older way of farming and perspectives and start handing the land off. Right. And we had talked about one particular farm where I was like, yeah, I've heard of them. I also have seen them like spurt and stutter. So uh, as farmers, we don't always make the most amount of money. And that's where we really, you know, want to talk about like, what is it? Is it to put dignity on the work and have livable wage jobs uh, and what is it to go from uh, survival to thrival? What does that really mean for us and like these larger ideas of the farm? Um, and a lot of it, you know, especially around this time of transition of ownership of land and of business and practice, I think about, you know, what are retirement plans and what are um, like good ways of community care? Um, because a lot of the, some of these farms have out of necessity because they hadn't saved well for retirement need to sell the property and need to do it immediately. They can't do uh, rent to own or um, share that space easily. Um, and so they end up selling to developers um, or they continue to out of necessity live on the property that they have farmed all these years and they have their thoughts and opinions about the business and the land. Um, which are well-deserved and like they've, they've come to those conclusions after years of experience. Uh, but as, as an indigenous uh, female farmer, like entering those spaces actually doesn't feel very accessible or safe um, because I, I am definitely going to radically do things differently than how they've always done it. Um, and so I respect that they need somewhere to live. Uh, but I like creating those clear boundaries is difficult with folks um, who have spent, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years wandering that property freely and now having to like constrict that or um, politely thank them for their opinion and continue on with <laughs> our methods <laughs> um, is kind of a scary prospect and uh, a difficult thing to overcome. 
Um, so that is like the industry as a whole is confronting this issue um, and this barrier, but many farmers, and I know so many young beginning female farmers um, and young beginning queer farmers and, and young beginning farmers of color. It's, it's such a, a huge population who's coming into and coming back and reclaiming these ancestral ways and these land stewardship and experiences. Um, but we have to somehow navigate these other folks who currently hold and own uh, operating farm businesses and lands, um, who are kind of the gatekeepers to our future survival and continuation. And, you know, for so many years before this, uh, it was the family farm model and farms were handed down generation to generation. And, and that's where this generational wealth really gets created. And now we are really entering a time where this is being disrupted um, through economic reasons and just like people having the freedom of choice to choose whatever they want to study and wherever they want to work, which is like great. But there's this this hiccup in the system that now we have to navigate and it's it's difficult. There's the issue of land uh, availability with zoning and development, like having an interurban farm. Because again, you know, it's like, well, you know, where is Good Rain Farm? It's like, well, it's, it's you know, you know, we're in Portland Greater Metro in Gresham. We, we're trying to stay a reasonable carbon footprint distance yeah. from where the food is grown to where the food is delivered. But that's, that's accessibility uh, also for, for the workers of the farm because yeah. that's the distance the workers now have to pay to travel and, and, and the time spent to travel there. So trying to work within these, you know, con- constructs, right? Where you're like, all right, there's diminished land availability, and all of this uh, development in these into urban areas, it's like, yeah, like you said, you have to sell the farm because all of the value of the business is in the goods of the farm, mm-hmm. the, the tractors, the equipment and the land. Yeah. So um, one of the ways I think that you do things differently at Good Rain, in my mind, is also the financial sustainability aspect. You know, we talk about sustainability uh, on the ecological level, and we also talk about financial sustainability. And that bucks a lot of trends in agriculture in and of itself as an identity to not allow the farm to be in so much debt that it is rarely, but for a day, let's say not in debt, which is the common kind of example of farm business debt that can happen where a farmer is in debt every day, but for the, you know, there's one day where the new loan comes in and everything gets paid off and there's just that, then it's already gone. It's like the day the money came in, it's gone already. It paid off all the loans that were holding everything up. So the yep. actual cash flow for the farmer to have a personal retirement is, is non-existent. Um, and we don't want to fall into that trap because that, like you said, how do you get a new generation of farmers to not have a retirement when they age out? Like, why right? would they want that career? We don't want that for no. them. That would yeah. be advice. So instead, it's like, well, how do we change the industry and put some dignity on the work so that people can retire off their farming and people yep. can do their indigenous ancestral farming? And there's room for that in this market. Yeah. Um, and that's the goal. I want Good Rain Farm to be around for generations beyond me. So doing building it now and building a strong farm now is uh all part of that all of this work is all about making this farm last for generations to come well if people want to find out more about us where should they find us on the internet yeah at www.goodrainfarm.com or we're on instagram and facebook and i'm toying with tiktok we may be too old for TikTok. The, <laughs> the votes are not out yet, totally, or not in yet. 
Yeah, we're on all the socials. And thank you so much to X-Ray FM for this opportunity to share our story. I think that's the biggest, um, you know, we, we grow vegetables, but we also grow stories <laughs> and share those. So um, thank you for that opportunity. And uh, stay tuned until 7 p.m. Radio is yours.